Well, we've been in the First Samuel for, well, since the last Sunday in December, and we'll be in First Samuel all the way up into a couple of weeks before Easter, um, which is great. And we'll go even go into Second Samuel as well. Now, we're not doing every single verse in First Samuel, but uh, when we do touch down, we're, we go through the verses. Um, and I encourage you, if, if you want fun, read, read all of 1 Samuel, because there's fun stories that I've, I've skipped over. Um, so let me, uh, I want to introduce this morning's passage by saying this. Today's passage communicates this profound truth. Your life is always preaching a message. Your life is always preaching a message. So if you have not been with us, I want to catch you up on where we are in 1 Samuel because it would be fair to just sort of launch in without any context. So uh, Saul is the first king of Israel, and of course David has just been anointed, or not just, about two years prior has been anointed by the prophet Samuel. And Saul has, um, he's been violating the employee handbook uh, at the palace. And there's been several workplace incidents, which HR has investigated, where Saul allegedly threw a spear at, Dan, at David. Um, and God keeps on saving David in spectacular fashion. Um, and we read last week about how David finally, or Saul finally goes off the deep end, and David runs for his life. And he runs to this little town, basically to Shell Beach or, you know, Avila Beach, right? And Saul pursues him. Remember that? And Saul sends, like, these three, you know, paramilitary hit squads, the black ops team, and they fall on the ground when they enter in that little church where he and Samuel are. And all of them begin, the, the hit squads as well as Saul himself begin to prophesy and to tell the truth about how good and glorious and great God is. And so this then marks the turn in Saul's anger and attack towards David. This then marks the turn last week in chapter 19. And so in chapter 19, 20, 21, 22, 23, and now today, 24, are all this series of Saul trying to kill David. And of course, um, things happen in that. You know, Saul annuls David's marriage to his wife, Michal, who did the whole fake head, you know, like, remember that, right? So Saul says, oh, you're no longer married to David, which publicly humiliates David, and then marries Michal off to another guy. That'd be a bad day, right? You come home, we're not married anymore, and I got to leave, right? That'd be bad. Then, of course, Jonathan is Saul's son, who's friends with David. Jonathan is trying to protect David. To the point where he's risking his own life, where Saul's actually chucking spears at him, too. Now, all during this time, David is, is not entirely alone. When David heads out um, into the little towns, um, he's, of course, he's well known. Everybody knows who David is because Saul has killed his thousands, but David, his ten thousands, right? It's that pop hit song that's on 104.5, um, right? And, and, so people begin to be attracted to David, and it's the same people that are in David's boat. Literally, in 1 Samuel 21, it says that those who did not pay their taxes and were being hunted by the government 
Like all the, all the guys that didn't want to be found out by Saul, right? They also started rallying around David. And there ended up being about 400 men that were around David. And it swelled at one point to 600. And so while they're sort of in the towns, kind of hanging out, camping in the parks, they see some things happening. Philistines begin attacking towns. David and his men step in, save the town. The army's not there, but they, so they're still doing good things. David's not trying to become king. He's not leading a revolt. He's not attacking the Israel army. And for four years, David and this ragtag, bobtailed, bedraggled bunch of brothers, they, they end up, well, they're homeless for four years. They're running for four years. They're four years of just fighting to try and stay alive. And then one day, an unbelievable event happens, and that's where we're going to pick up today. So will you read with me 1 Samuel 24, verse 1. Let's read together. After Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, David is in the desert of En Gedi. From all around Israel. And set out to look for David and his men near... It's the name of my new band. <laughs> the Crags of the Wild Goats. We were, I, I said this in men's Bible study, and Rick, Rick said, no, no, it's Crags of the Old Wild Goats, Andy. And I was like, Um, the desert of Engedi. The desert of Engedi is on the western shore of the Dead Sea. The, Jerusalem is, at, is on the top of a mountain, basically, almost 5,000 feet. And at the bottom of that is the Dead Sea. And, and the Dead Sea is below sea level, right? A saline inland water, of water, salty like the ocean. And on the western side of it, there's these spectacular labyrinth of hills and caves and, and rock formations, and uh, it's a place to get lost in, and that's the desert of En Gedi. Evidently, there's also a region called the Crags of the Wild Old Goats. <laughs> so David and his men, they're there in this desert region. Now, they're staying in the caves by day so that they don't have detection. They've just left the city because there's been a couple of moments where the people in the city have um, turned David and his men over to Saul for a reward. And so David and his men are hiding. Verse 3. Saul came to the sheep pens along the way, and a cave was there, and Saul went into. Aren't you glad your life is not written in the Bible? <laughs> David and his men were far back in the cave. So King Saul, eyes unadjusted to the dark cave, enters to take care of some business. He takes off his cloak and his armor, setting them down on the side, gets out his copy of the Wall Street Journal, and begins to meditate. Distracted, Saul does not see nor hear David and his men in the back of the cave. Now, if you were David and his men, you would be, your eyes would be completely adjusted. And when the person walked into the cave, everybody's all, shh, shh, shh. 
probably just the shepherd. Oh my gosh. Here's this, here's this guy clanking around, making all sorts of rackets, calling for his Wall Street Journal to be delivered to him. Yes, I want coffee too, right? And, and I mean, like, they cannot believe it. It's King Saul. And so one of David's friends leans over to him and said, this, this is the day the Lord spoke about. When he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. As you wish, David. So David is given a gift, an opportunity, a dilemma. What do I do? What do I do? And so David makes a decision. He creeps forward, Saul still reading. Now, his armor and his cloak, his robe would have been separate from him because that's all one piece. And David comes up and cuts off the corner of Saul's robe and retreats back into the darkness. David does not kill King Saul. He could have. All of his years of wandering, four years of pain and suffering, it could have ended right there. David gives Saul mercy. Let's read this together. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. Saul deserves justice. David does not give him what he deserves. There is great power in mercy. Mercy has the ability, when you receive it, to change your life. After Calvin Coolidge um, left the presidency, uh, and even after he died, a story emerged which ended up being proven to be true. In the early days of Calvin Coolidge's presidency, Coolidge awoke one morning in a hotel room to find a young man snooping through his room to burglar Calvin Coolidge. He's going through Coolidge's jacket pockets, and Coolidge had his one eye open and spoke up, good morning. <laughs> and the cat burglar froze, and Coolidge said, please don't take my watch or the chain. It was a gift from my wife, and there's mementos on them from my kids that are irreplaceable. And the cat burglar said, oh, okay. And then Coolidge sat up, and he said, who are you? And by this time, the young man didn't know what to say, because he thought that maybe the guy in the bed was somebody important, but maybe not. He didn't know. He was just in a nice hotel, and he ended up spilling his guts. He says, I'm a young college student. I don't have money for books. I don't have money for tuition. I lost it all in a game of cards, and if I go home, I'm done for. And Coolidge says, okay, you know that I'm the president, right? <laughs> and I'm sure that at this point, the man peed his pants, the young man peed his pants, but he didn't. It doesn't say that in the story. It just says that the young man quaked. Dazed and confused, the young man wanted to run, but Coolidge says, no, no, don't run. If you run out that door, the Secret Service will shoot you. 
So Coolidge says this, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you $32. He pulls out of his wallet, gives him all the cash in his wallet. And he says, this is a loan. And he gives it to this young man. And then the young man, Coolidge says, leave out that door. The Secret Service won't know that you came. See, mercy changed this young man's life. Yes, he did pay back the $32. Mercy changes you. Mercy has the power to wake you from the slumber of either your rebellion or the slumber of thinking that you're insignificant. David has mercy on Saul. Why? He's hoping that in this one act of not killing Saul when he could have, that maybe that Saul would wake up and realize, you know what, I don't have to try and kill David. But the interesting thing about this passage is that the moment that David cuts Saul's robe, he instantly regrets it. Why? We'll, we'll come to that in just a moment, but let me tell you about what a robe is that you might not know. Uh, a robe was a symbol of your honor. Now, you and I, in our culture, we do not live in a culture that values honor. If I, if I asked you what the definition of honor was, I would have as many definitions as people are in this room because it's not even something that we're aware of. Uh, it used to be, and it is in other parts of the world, but this is where we are today. Honor is, um, think of it like this, that honor, now your robe is a symbol of your honor, and honor is about your very dignity. It is about also your power and your influence, your dignity combined with your power and your influence means that you have a realm of influence in your life, and the ancients called this your kingdom. The place in which through your honor, through your dignity and significance, you could make an impact, and the primary place that you made the impact was your family. Your robe was a representation of your honor, your dignity, and all the people who got you to where you were. So thus, in Isaiah, when God's robe fills the temple, it's a symbol of God's immense honor and dignity and all the, part, all the people that are part of God's family. When a bride walks down the aisle, why does, it, why does she have this long robe? Why is it huge? It's to help us see her honor, her dignity, and the beauty of who she is, and that everybody in that room helped her become so beautiful. That's why there's a long train or a robe that the bride wears. When the woman was bleeding for 12 years, remember this in the book of John? And what did she touch when she touched Jesus? His robe. Why? Because she's saying to Jesus, I don't have any honor and dignity in myself right now. I'm that empty. But if I grab onto your robe, you could give me some of yours, and that will be enough for me. And that's why Jesus says, who touched me? And then when he looks at her, he says, you have faith. This is why... When King Saul is being rebuked by Samuel and he grabs onto Samuel's robe, what he's saying is, I've messed up, Samuel. I get it. 
I don't have any honor and dignity in me right now. I need to grab onto you right now. And as Samuel pulls away, the robe rips, and Samuel turns to Saul, King Saul, and says, see how you've taken a part of my dignity and honor? Now yours will be taken from you. This dignity and honor of being the king of Israel will be ripped from you. So cutting off someone's robe wasn't just some small act. It was a very symbolic thing. And immediately the Holy Spirit convicts David when he does this. Verse 25, read with me. Afterward... Can you see why? If David cuts off Saul's robe, what he's saying is this. Saul, I'm going to take the king, the role of king from you. I'm going to take your kingship from you. I'm going to take your honor and your dignity and your worth from you. I'm going to cut it off of you. And this is not what God wanted for David, and David knew it. You see, all around David was a, a lands, lands of kings where kings were made by their own power and violence. In that day and age, as in today, the way that you get power is through force. And David wanted to be a different kind of king. He wanted to be a kind of leader that God would support that God would make, not one that he would have to make himself. Make sense? Do you want to live the kind of life where you have to do it all by yourself all the time? Or do you want to live the kind of life where you're constantly seeing God working on your behalf? Verse 6, David said to his men, the Lord forbid it that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lay my hand on him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. Do you remember what anointed means? He's got a job. Anointed means you got a job. He's employed. Saul was employed to be king, not me, David says. And David immediately, it's this fantastic moment that Hebrew says that he rebukes. I always think that David goes, shh. Because all of his friends are saying what? What are you worried about? Who cares about the robe, David? Just kill him. I want to go home. It's been four years. I haven't had a shower in four years. You can smell me. Like that. Let me go home. Just kill him. He's going to try and kill you. This is not rocket science, David. And David the entire time is, shh, shh, shh. No, I got a whole bag of these. Shh. Right? <laughs> And then David does something absolutely incredible. Verse 8, read this with me. Then David went out of the cave and called out to Saul, my lord, the king. When Saul looked behind him, David bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. Can you see it? Saul has just left the cave. Now Saul's eyes are adjusted to the dark, kind of, because he's facing outside. And the moment that he walks out, David comes out, falls down, face down into the dust. Saul turns around. David says this. Read with me, verse 10. 
This day you have seen with your own eyes how the Lord delivered you into my hands in the cave. Some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not lay my hand on my Lord because he is the Lord's anointed. And David is making himself utterly vulnerable, just like Saul was vulnerable to him in the cave. Now David is making himself vulnerable, and he doesn't hold back any of the truth. He says to Saul, stop trying to kill me. I don't want this. I don't want violence. I don't want to fight. I haven't done anything wrong. I'm not trying to take your job. Stop. And at the same time, David confesses my set, his, his, his mistake. I know I cut a little corner off your robe. Look, I'm not trying to take anything from you. I will not kill you. The robe thing wasn't about trying to steal your honor. It's about the proof that I'm not going to kill you. Verse 16 when David finished saying this, Saul asked, read with me, is that your voice, David, my son? So two things. First of all, obviously Saul can't see David because David is face down in the dirt, light differences, it's morning time, maybe the sun is in Saul's eyes. But then he says, is that your voice, David? And then he adds a very important two words, my son. Saul continues, and he weeps out loud. You are more righteous than I. He said, you've treated me well, but I have treated you badly. David's mercy breaks Saul's heart. Mercy changes people. Humility changes people. Well, for a moment. But we'll read about that next week. Here's what I want to ask this week. What is it about David that would ever lead to this intense and unique interaction? What is it about him that would... would like, what has to happen to you in order for you to have mercy? Does that make sense? I mean, Saul didn't see this interaction coming after his second cup of coffee this morning, right? I would not have done this to David. Anybody here would have done what David did? If I had the chance to eliminate my enemy at his most vulnerable moment after and end four years of misery, I would do it. Um, I had five years in San Luis Obispo as the associate pastor there. And the last four were absolutely miserable for me, principally because my boss was making life utterly miserable for me. Now, I didn't help. I, to his micromanaging, paranoid, prideful, insane, resentful way of interacting, I added my own vanity, pride, and resentment as well. So don't get me wrong, it took two to tango. Um, but what did I do when I was about to leave there, I applied for two positions. This was the second job I applied for. It was not my first choice. Do you know what my first choice was? It was to be a police officer at the Morro Bay Police Department. Why? Because that was the only way that I could legally tase and or possibly <laughs> shoot my boss. <laughs> I'm not kidding. That's the only reason why I applied to Morro Bay Police Department. 
I just was imagining like traffic stops in my mind, you know? You know, walking around the car, smashing his back light out. Oh, you have a light out, sir. I'm gonna need you to step out of the car, <laughs> you know? <clears throat> Stop attacking me, you know, um, that kind of thing. God did not give me that job for a reason. So um, here's the thing. I'm interested in, in what David is like. What is his heart like? What does your heart have to be like in order to give mercy? Do, are, are you interested as well? Am I the only one who? OK, good. So Jesus, we need your help. Help us to hear. Are you ready? Here we go. Read this with me. David's mercy in humility. Now, it's taken me years to practice mercy and humility, principally because they require immense power to do so. To give mercy means that you actually trust and know that forgiveness works. To give mercy means that you know and have practiced forgiveness. You are actively forgiving the people that are in your life. Forgiveness is simply this. It is agreeing that you make a lousy judge, jury, and executioner of the world. Turn to the person next to you and say, you make a lousy judge. <laughs> now, Matt Guerrero, who's, this, who's a criminal judge in our court system, he's not here, so we're fine. But it's true. You do. You and I stink at doing God's job, job as judge of the universe, right? About four of you are convinced. Say yes, right? Yeah. Forgiveness means that you are consistently saying, I, uh, I agree that what they did is wrong, but I'm not going to be their judge. Got to hand them over to you. Right? And when you consistently do that, you start to see that forgiveness works. Forgiveness delivers your own heart from constantly keeping track of every single negative thing that a person has done and prosecuting them for it. And so then what ends up happening is that you say, oh, it's actually better to be merciful to someone. It's actually better to receive mercy than to berate myself constantly. Do you see why it takes immense power to give mercy? What about humility? To practice humility means that you actually trust that God is better being in control than you are, which means for me, I needed 20 years to try and be in control of my life. And completely, and over and over again, I'm diving the plane into the pavement as I try and take control, like over and over and over and over again until it's like, maybe God is better at this than I am. And then to begin to, to trust, right? To not, to take a step back and go, you got this, I'm going to wait. You, I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait to do that process until you're utterly and thoroughly convinced that God is better at his job than you are at his job. That's humility. Humility is the willingness to follow directions. 
Now, growing up, I had no one teaching me the link between mercy and forgiveness and humility and God's sovereignty. Growing up, my role models were people who either floated through life or who tried very hard to avoid responsibility. This was my entire family. They're good people, they're lovely people, they're broken people. Marianne Williamson, in her book, A Return to Love, writes this, our deepest fear is not that we are inadequate. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. It is our light, not our darkness, that most frightens us. Why is this true? See, if I'm powerful beyond measure, then what significance does my interactions have? If, I'm pow- if you are powerful beyond measure, then what does that mean about your little choices? What does that mean about your decisions? You see, if, if you have value and worth and significance and power and influence, then what that means is that everything that you do matters. It means that you have the power to either build or destroy, and you're always doing one or the other. You can't sort of glide or drift or pretend that what you do doesn't matter because you're powerful, so that means that everything that you do matters. And there was no one in my family who was consistently talking to me about my great power, about the immense resources that I had in Christ, about how to forgive or about how to trust. And this wasn't in my family's DNA. And one of the reasons why I'm in a DNA group right now is because I need friends to practice that exchange work with. I, I, need, I need friends to be able to forgive and to pray and to practice mercy. That's why we do DNA group at this church, is because sometimes we didn't get that DNA from our family of origin. And all the while, the enemy was whispering in my ear uh, growing up, well, Andy, you're, you know, I'm... You're not that important. Look, you can have fun as long as you don't hurt anyone else. You don't need to put pressure on yourself. Look, what you do doesn't really matter. And then there was many moments when I believed this, and so I indulged, I played, I laughed, I had a good time, but with no boundaries, I then went too far again and again and again and again. And there were so many moments when I violated my own heart of what I knew to be true and right. And then guilt and shame laughed with glee. They hissed that old lie, listen, you've already messed up. You might as well just give up and keep on going. You ever heard that one? (laughs) You know, you're already tainted. You've already screwed up. You've already done. So just, just keep, just go. Just take the next step. You're already there anyways. What a lie from the pit of hell. And so for the first 20 years, well, from 14 to 34, I struggled. I struggled to build something good, mainly because I didn't have any plans or tools, but I knew that I was supposed to build something. I struggled to avoid temptation or pride or resentment, and then I would fail. And for 20 years of struggling, it left me with this, that I felt tarnished and stained and damaged goods. Can you relate? Thank you. I'll never forget meeting a friend who has the uh, unfortunate gift of seeing angels and demons. You don't want this gift. I asked her, I was a speaker up at a camp, and I felt really good that I was like a speaker at a camp. 
They want to hear me. Oh, man. So I learned that, you know, she could see angels and demons, and I was like, well, like, like there's no demons on me, right? And she's like, well, you got to, you know, yeah. And I'm like, well, like, what are they? She goes, you really want to know? And I'm like, oh, yeah. You know, because I'm just going to flick them off. I'm like, there's no. <sighs> Do you know I'm a camp speaker? Like, okay, yeah, you're here to, you're here to hear me, right? Okay, good. And uh, she says, well, you have less demons than most pastors I know. And I'm like, see, 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 you know? And then she said this. They're just way bigger than any other pastor I've, I've ever seen. Yeah. Yeah, I was in total bondage. I mean, I had so much pride and so much shame and so much fear. I, 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 didn't, know, I, I didn't know how to be me. I didn't know who I was. So what does this have to do with David? Just calm down. I'll get there. Hold on. Pastor J.S. Park says this. He's a pastor in recovery. He wrote this great book, The Life of King David. He writes this in his book. Who we are lays the pattern of what we can do, which is the same thing that Neil Anderson, pastor and author, says, that no one can consistently behave in a way that is inconsistent with how they perceive themselves. Would you read these two with me? Who we are lays the pattern of what we do. And then sort of the flip side of that same coin no one can consistently behave in a way that is inconsistent with how they perceive themselves. Like if you believe that what you do doesn't matter or that you don't have that much to give or that you're unimportant or that you're damaged goods or that you're worthless, then it really doesn't matter what you do, right? I mean, no one's paying attention, so just drift. And then you won't notice why your quiet little rebellions keep on coming up. And you'll never connect that most of your actions are kind of determined by your urges. And if you zoom out at your life over the last 10 years and you ask the question, what are you building? What are you creating? Because you have immense power to build and create. So what are you doing? You would be disappointed with the answer. I mean, this is me. I would wake up at 3 a.m. in a sweat, berating myself for not being better and promising myself that I'll improve. And while I was busy trying to make myself better and deal with the consequences of my little urges and quiet rebellions, I never considered why I actually believed two things that were so incongruous. I believed that I was a child of God, loved, adopted, forgiven, and also at the exact same time, I believed that what I did really didn't matter. That there were more important, more responsible, more valuable people than me, right? Like, I'm just a pastor of a small church. What really matters is what the churches that have a lot of people, what's what those pastors do. Like, I'm just a pastor on the Central Coast. Like, it's, like, if you were in L.A. or in San Francisco, then it would really matter. 
Look, I only have two kids. If I had more kids, then, uh, you know, like I was always in junior varsity. I was never in the big show. It was always just, eh, you know, whatever. Can you relate? Why is it that I had these two beliefs inside my own heart? And when I tried to get rid of one, that I was worthless or that I was unimportant or that I didn't have any gifts or what I did really didn't matter, I couldn't get it out. And only God could save me and he would use my deepest pain to do so. At this time, Jonah, he had had a stroke and he was having his seizures and it was really clear that he was not going to progress. He was gonna be one for the rest of his life. This is my, our oldest, our 14-year-old. And, uh, and I felt really disturbed by this because my whole life was bent on achieving great things and building great things. And then I had to answer this question, my son can't do this, so where does his worth come from? And Jesus whispered to me one day, is Jonah any less lovely? And of course I said, no, like quite the opposite, like he's even more lovely. And then Jesus whispered this. He said, the same is true for you. And it cracked my heart open. This was God's mercy on me. And Jesus gave me a wife and friends who would help me for the next four years shrink those very large demons in my life with these words. Would you read them with me? I am beloved, worthy, chosen, obedient, and enough because Jesus grants these to me as a gift. Would you read it again a little bit louder, a little bit with some more? Put some pepper on it, will you? I am beloved, worthy, chosen, obedient, and enough because Jesus grants these to me as a gift. See, God... God found me and God saved me. And this is David's story. God pursued and found David when he felt utterly worthless. Remember when David was the redheaded stepchild, 14 years old? As a junior hire, you feel terrible about yourself when you wake up, right? Junior hire's motto that they have over their lives is nobody look at me. I'm molting. <laughs> Amen? Right? Stop looking at them. They're in the back for a reason, right? Avert your eyes. And when David came before his father, he's like, Dad, what can I do? His dad said this, leave. I don't want you here. I'm going to give you a job that the family dog is better at than you are. Go be a shepherd. And he couldn't help out with the business. He couldn't help out with the farm. He couldn't help out with mechanics or repairs. His dad didn't even want to see him. How did he feel about himself? Worthless. And that's when God chose him. That's when God found him. When he was most broken, when he was at the end of himself, God sent the prophet Samuel to anoint him with oil, and the Holy Spirit rushed upon David and filled him. And the worthless junior hire became anointed as the next king. David's entire worth is, is, is determined by God. David worships God, and where does it land him? In the throne room. 
David is slinging rocks while he's bored, and what happens? How does God use it? He kills a giant. Time and time again, in the four years of running for his life, David will say to God, God, where do I go? And in 1 Samuel, God will speak to David and say, don't go there. They're about to kill you. You need to leave here right now. They're about to kill you. Run, David, run, right? And time and time again, David avoids disaster. Now, we see David as a great king, but David still doesn't see himself that way. He might be 19 years old at this point in his life. He's probably not shaving yet. I wasn't at 19, not until I was in my 30s. I'm 33 right now. So how does David see himself? Well, if you read the Psalms, many of which he wrote during these four years of wandering, you would read this. David would say this, I am made for, saved for, and shaped for him. I know who I am because I know who he is. He is my God, my Savior, my Redeemer, the one who chooses the unworthy, who forgives the rebel, who rescues the weak, so that the world might see his great love and mercy. Read this with me again. I am made for, saved for, and shaped for him. I know who I am because I know who he is. He is my God, my Savior, my Redeemer, the one who chooses the unworthy, who forgives the rebel, who rescues the weak, so that the world might see his great love and mercy. Your life is always preaching a message. Your worth comes from what God says about you, not what the world says, so that when the world's expectations and temptations crushes your friend or your spouse or your child or your grandchild, God is then asking you to speak the gospel, hope and truth into their heart and then you'll watch the Holy Spirit change their life. Your life is always preaching a message. Your worth comes from what Jesus has done for you on the cross, not from what you can achieve on your own. So when your spouse or your friend or your child or your grandchild fails miserably and is crushed by the weight of guilt and shame, God will use you to speak the hope and forgiveness and love and mercy of God in their lives. And you will watch the Holy Spirit change them because of you. Your life is always preaching a message your strength, like David's strength, comes from listening to and obeying God, not listening to and obeying your urges. And when your friend or your loved one or your spouse crashes their life on the rocks of consequences, you will be there to tell them, sweetheart, you are still beloved, still worthy, still chosen, still forgiven, still enough. And your Savior will change their life through you. And when you fail, when you wreck hard, and you're tempted to believe the lies of shame and guilt, you will have a chorus of friends and families that you've spoken to over the years, and they will sing the song, same song of the gospel back to you. And their words will change you. Look, your life right now is full of significance and meaning and unbelievable power because you've been saved and made for and shaped for him. We are sons and daughters of the King of Kings. 
And what a king we have. For when Jesus had a chance to hand me over to all of my quiet, rebellious consequences, he didn't. He didn't hold up the evidence before me to make me feel bad. Instead, he was held up on the cross as evidence to woo my heart back to him. He was speared in the side so that I didn't have to be. He was placed in that cave dead so that I might live. This is our King Jesus, and we can trust him. Amen? Would you pray with me? Jesus, thank you for your mercy. We reject the lie now in Jesus' name that we have nothing to give, that we're, we don't have any talents or skills. We reject the lie that we're worthless, that we're tainted goods. We reject the lie that you're done with us. We reject the lie that we have nothing to offer because we're too old or too weak or too poor or too young. We reject the lie that, that somehow we do not have the same inheritance as all the saints who are in heaven praising your name. And we receive the truth that you've given us immense power and influence and a calling. And we say yes to your calling for our lives right now. We trust that you'll reveal it. You'll show us the people that you want us to love. You'll show us the people that you want us to love. So Lord, bless these good words that have been sung over and spoken into the hearts of my friends here today. I cancel all the plans that the enemy has to rob or steal or destroy these seeds that you've planted, Holy Spirit. And Jesus, we pray that the 49ers would win. <laughs> and all God's people said, Amen. Would you stand for the benediction? <laughs> now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance, that's his delight in you, and give you the peace that passes all understanding. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Y'all go eat snacks and goodies and wish Paul a happy birthday.